Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm only one half of your team today. This is Bill. Uh, Mikkel's not going to be on this episode but uh, really looking forward uh, to joining back with her to have conversations in upcoming episodes. This episode is uh, really personal. And uh, the reason we haven't put out an episode in the last two weeks is because I've been in Ohio dealing with an ailing parent who, uh, my mom, my mom, she passed away. And so I went to Ohio to essentially be by her bedside as she was in hospice care. And this episode's going to revolve around my mom. It's also going to revolve around our system in this country of handling dying. And, uh, and I think there's lots of things that tie into awakening. I recognized while I was there early on in this process that being a caregiver in death is deeply rooted in facets of awakening. If you recognize that there is deep encouragement to be present to shed ego, to develop acceptance, love, and how one makes meaning in the universe. Let me start with my mom, who she was. Um, My mom and my dad were both incredibly good parents. They, They had their own shadows and flaws, but my mom came from a broken home. She was in foster care for most of her early life. Her brother notified me while I was in hospice next to my mom and I was asking him stories. He said that my mom didn't return to their home until she was 15 or 16 years old. She had been in foster care and my dad came from a a dysfunctional home as well where his dad was sometimes physically abusive and almost always emotionally distant from the family. So my mom and dad don't have any religious system, and they get married. And my mom and dad figure it out. They make things work. We ate dinner around the dining room table. My mom and dad both worked hard. Neither one of them called in sick, hardly ever, if at all. In my 20, you know, my 18 years of growing up in my home, I can literally remember my dad calling in sick one or two times. My mom kind of along the same lines. And so my mom taught me hard work. My mom was at all of my sporting events, regardless of the weather. She did the same for my brother. I have a brother who's three and a half years younger than me, and and being almost four years apart, we kind of grew up in in different homes almost, uh, because there was such a different time period kind of for each phase of our life with where our parents were at, but our parents were just good parents. And about two years ago, my mom found a little bump on her body and uh, she went in to get it looked at and it was skin cancer and it was one of the most aggressive forms of skin cancer and so she went through treatment got it uh, cut out got radiation got chemo all that kind of stuff 
and they thought they had gotten rid of it, thought it was gone. Okay, we think we got it. Only to have several months later, when my mom goes in for one of her routine checkups to see if it's still gone, they find that my mom has got spots on her brain. And so little by little, my mom has this slow deterioration that is full of ups and downs. There was one point where she fell down and essentially lost much of her cognitive uh, memory and some of her cognitive ability. And she couldn't name all of her grandchildren. She struggled to name places and dates for even for her kids. And I flew out to Ohio. I live in Utah and I flew out to Ohio because it was, my dad was super scared and it felt like things were coming to an end. My mom uh, went several days not improving and the doctors had kind of given up hope. My dad and I called her main doctor in the morning and said, here's what we're seeing. We're seeing her being at maybe, you know, 50% of her normal self in terms of her memory and cognitive ability. And uh, we're not seeing any improvement. And the doctor on the phone said, I see the same thing. And we should have seen improvement by now. And so we kind of prepared ourselves that she was going to either be like this for a while or was going to pass sometime soon. But my mom, the fighter that she is, she got better, started improving, and got back to a relatively normal life. In, uh, in recent months, my mom was slowly deteriorating again. And about six weeks ago, my mom did this really brave thing where she, my, my son and my daughter-in-law had their first baby. And so I, you heard me on the podcast say I'm a grandpa. And my mom asked my dad if, she, if he thought it was wise if she could come out here and see the, her great-grandbaby, her first great-grandbaby. And my dad and my brother talked to each other and said, you know, we think she's doing pretty good. We think she can do this. And so she flies into Vegas and somehow the stress of the flight um, caused her to lose some of her cognitive ability again and some of her memory. So she's in the casino slash hotel. And I should back up. Her plane lands at 11 p.m. The rental car facility is part of the airport. It's right next door to the airport. You get on a shuttle, you go right over to the car rental facility. We know my mom landed her airplane at 11 p.m. and she doesn't get her rental car until three something in the morning. From there, it's a 15 minute ride to the hotel, but it is about an hour before my mom arrives at the hotel and checks in. The next day, she's supposed to check out at 11 a.m., get in her rental car and drive two hours to Southern Utah to see her grandbaby. But she skips checkout, her bags stay in her room, and she just goes to the casino floor playing slot machines, and twice my dad sees a debit transaction where she took money out of an ATM to continue gambling. We talked to her about middle of the day and said, Mom, why aren't you here? And she said, Oh, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'll be right there. And then four hours later, she still wasn't there. At that point, I've got really good friends in the Vegas area, and I reached out to a handful of them, and two of them who said they were in town said, We'll drive right over. The wife drove around the parking lot trying to find my mom's car, and uh, her husband went inside and 
over the course of the next 25 minutes, finally found my mom in the casino. As soon as he said he found her, I jumped right into um, my vehicle with my wife, and we drove to Vegas and picked my mom up, left the rental car there at the hotel slash casino, and brought my mom home. The next day, she recovered. She got back to where she was kind of at, doing really well. And she held her great-grandbaby, and we had a wonderful three or four days with my mom. And then I took her back to Vegas and gave her a kiss and put her on the airplane. Three weeks later, she goes in for a routine checkup. And it goes from routine checkup to them notifying her that she has a month or two to live. And they take her off all of her cancer medications and say that they're not doing anything. That they're sorry, but put your affairs in order. My mom, my dad, and my brother notified me of that. My mom calls me up and says, Billy, I've only got a month or two to live. I could only imagine what, what she felt. But man, I was scared because I knew, even though I knew the whole time eventually I was going to lose my mom, now it became really real. A month or two to live. A week later, she went downhill again drastically, eventually being unconscious to some extent, uh, some level of minimal consciousness. And hospice uh, suggested that my dad take her to a facility. A hospice facility where essentially they are going to provide extreme comfort, try to get her systems back online, but not going to treat uh, any kind of illness or uh, issues that we were dealing with. For instance, my mom could no longer eat or drink on her own. And so hospice essentially says, look, she doesn't have much time to live. Cancer is going to get really bad. It's going to start hurting. And right now your mom is unable to eat or drink because she's barely has some minimal level of consciousness and we're not going to feed her. And, and I, again, I'm going to stay this in the onset based on the way we let these systems work. This was the best option we had. And so essentially what they do is they keep my mom extremely comfortable. And if she comes back online, then we've, you know, she starts eating and drinking again. She goes home and she gets a few more good weeks. But essentially my mom just continued to decline. So my mom went into the facility, I think Sunday night, maybe. And Monday she was entirely unresponsive. My wife and I got on an airplane Monday night and we... We flew to Ohio and got to my mom's bedside Monday morning. Monday morning, I walk in and my mom is as responsive as she was the entire time I was in Ohio for this trip. She could answer some questions. Mom, are you comfortable? Yes. Mom, do you have any pain? No. I love you, Mom. I love you. Mom, I hope you forgive me for anything I've ever done wrong. Yes. I'm going to play for you my last conversation with my mom. Here it is. You're beautiful, Mom. I love you very much. I love you. Let me see those blue eyes again. Let me see. Hi, Brenda. I love you. I love you. 
I'm glad to see you today. I love fishing. Yeah. Do you remember laughing at me when I said I wore my flip-flops in the snow? I love fishing. Yeah, I know. All day on Tuesday, my mom was, for the most part, responding that way. Answering questions. Saying her love in one moment. I blew her a kiss. I kissed my hand and I blew it off to her. And she formed a kiss with her mouth and blew it back. One of my memories growing up was that my mom kept a really clean house and she was always cleaning. I can still remember the smell of pledge. My mom used it on all the woodwork in the home. I also remember my mom playing Randy Travis a ton as she went about cleaning the house. And there in the hospital, I sang to her, Randy Travis, Deeper Than the Holler. It's a love song with all these country adages. I remember singing that so much. I knew the words by heart. And I'd hardly ever heard the song or sang it as an adult. And I know I ain't seen it all. But I heard that ocean salty and the stars they sometimes fall And that would not do justice to the way I feel for you So I had to sing a song about all the things I knew My love is deeper than the holler, stronger than the river than the pine trees growing tall upon the hill My love is purer than the snowflakes That fall in late December And honest as a robin on a springtime windowsill And longer than the song of a whippoorwill So there I am, singing to my mom Recognizing that She's not leaving this place. She's going to die here. By Wednesday, she was much less responsive, unable to really say much at all. Some little mumbles, but she was deteriorating quick. I got together with my brother and my dad, and I suggested, you guys, I don't think there's much time left of her being able to know that we're there and we're talking and we're communicating, and I think we need to say our final goodbyes. My dad and brother agreed, and we went back in the room, and we did that, expressing our love and our appreciation for all that she is, all that she was. And uh, we said goodbye. At that point, it was just a waiting game. As my mom became more and more unresponsive, less of opening her eyes, less of her smiles, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, decline, decline, decline. First the smiles, then the words, then the open eyes. The eyes. They say the eyes are the window to the soul. You know, my mom, as she became unresponsive, she would open her eyes, and when you talked, she would look at you. She was still looking at you. I could see her eyes. I could see that she was still there. But being unresponsive, she could no longer communicate. 
She could no longer ask us to cease a conversation. She could no longer ask us to change the music or turn the TV off or on. She could no longer tell us that she was comfortable or uncomfortable, but she was still there behind her eyes. And I looked into her eyes and I saw sadness. I saw a soul saying, I don't want to be here anymore. This is no longer useful. And for the first time in my life, I am faced with watching a person die and recognizing that we could do this thing in a way better way. We, you, you don't get it. Like Again, we have religious ideology in our country that controls the way we operate systems. We have, as a collective, chosen to base how we treat other human beings in extreme moments based on invisible, supernatural beliefs that are religious in nature. And I used to be there. I used to be somebody who was deeply against euthanasia. And I was against it because I I knew it was wrong to take a life, even your own or another person who was in pain and whose life no longer had value or meaning to them. And then I sit in this hospice facility with multiple corridors and hallways, lots and lots of rooms of people, many of which are just there to die. And as I sit with my own mom and as I watch other caregivers walk around this hospice facility, it strikes me that for the first time I am intimately aware that this is not the healthiest way to handle these, these kinds of situations. Like when my dog is in too much pain, when my dog is no longer happy and enjoying life, I can take my dog to a vet and they can put my dog to sleep. My mom was not going to get better. She was deteriorating by the day she was starving to death. I could see in her eyes that it was over for her. She was done. And yet, imagine, for a moment, take two minutes, imagine being locked in your diseased body, unable to move your hands or your feet, unable to tell a doctor that you're uncomfortable sleeping on your side for two hours with your neck kinked a certain way. Imagine not being able to tell your loved ones to change the conversation because it's too painful. Imagine not being able to ask your family to shut off the TV because it's annoying you. But there you are behind your eyes, trapped, trapped in this prison that is your eyes. It became crystal clear to me in that moment that anybody who watches this process play out I'd find it difficult to believe that they could be a critic of euthanasia. If we had the means, we absolutely would have chosen that route and sent her on her journey. There was zero value left other than to watch suffering, which in and of itself is a facet of awakening to both reduce suffering, but as well as to learn to live with it, knowing that it happens, knowing that there are uncomfortable sensations in our body 
and we label them and we name them and we call them suffering. And as I sat there with my dying mom, seeing her trap behind her eyes, I grew angry. I mean, angry. I was furious. I wanted to punch holes in walls. I began to have these thoughts, like I want my mom out of her misery. And so my brother, the, the one morning, is take, talking to me out in the hallway. He takes me aside and talks to me in the hallway. He goes, you know, to be honest, to be honest, I thought about just grabbing the pillow in there and thought like, what would it mean if I just took the pillow and held it over her face and just helped her exit this world without any additional suffering? And I looked at my brother and I said, I said, I've had the same thoughts as I sat in my chair last night trying to fall asleep. The same thought came into my own mind. Like, like I couldn't do it. I couldn't live with myself. He couldn't do it. He couldn't live with himself. But we recognized to do so would have been more humane than to have watched this beautiful woman slowly starve to death. I got to thinking too, like as you sit in a room with somebody who's dying and you're like, okay, I'm going to hold their hand. I'm going to hold their hand and I'm going to tell them I love them and I'm going to tell them it's okay to go. And I got to thinking about when somebody's trapped behind their eyes, what would be the best thing you could do? And the thing you, that you fall into that's not any good is that your, your mom is completely unresponsive. You know she's dying. You, your brother, and your dad are sitting in the room and it only becomes natural to suddenly find yourself having a conversation about how you're going to deal with mom's impending death as if it has already happened. And then 30 seconds into one of these conversations, and they happened over and over, 30 seconds into these conversations, all three of you realize like, oh, crap. We're talking about her as if she's already gone, and she might still be able to hear us. She might still be in there listening and what torture that would be. Imagine that. Imagine your father crying and asking, do I do, I do cremation, boys? Or do I bury her? And then 30 seconds in, realizing your mom might be there awake, trapped in the prison that is her eyes. And so that night, as I got to thinking about how messy, how full of shit this thing is, how messy this thing is. My wife went to go stay with her family for a night about an hour away. And so my sister-in-law took her and off they went. And around nine o'clock at night, I told my dad I was going to take off from the room that him and my mom were in. And every night, by the way, every night I would get a bed, a fold up bed out of a closet. And I'd set that bed down next to my mom's bed and I would make it and get it ready for my dad to sleep in so he could sleep next to his wife. Every morning, I folded that bed up and I put it away, only to get it out the next night and set it next to my mom's bed so my dad could sleep next to her. Every night when I left their room to go sleep on my own, I, I prayed, and I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist, and I wasn't praying to, to some magical being I was simply sending thoughts off into the universe saying, let her not be alive when I come into this room in the morning. Let her pass. That night, 
when I separated from my dad, when I said, dad, I'm, I'm going to take off for a little bit here. I'm going to go check out And this hospice facility had a meditation room. So I said, dad, I'm going to go check out the meditation room. And I went into the meditation room and I sat down and I read a book of poems on dying. And I thought long and hard about what it means to sit with someone who's dying. I want to read a few of those to you. Therefore, the true caregiver of the dying does all that needs to be done without asserting herself and says all that needs to be said without saying anything. Things happen, and she allows them to happen. Things fail to happen, and she allows them to fail to happen. She is always there, but it is as though she is not there. She realizes that she does nothing. Yet, all that needs to be done is done. That was the first one I read that deeply touched me as I thought about the caregivers who were taking care of my mom. Every two hours coming in and changing her position. Every morning giving her a bath. A wonderful woman named Natalie came in and gave her a comfort massage. Two nurses, Eileen and Tina, looked after her as if she was their own mother. The staff was incredible. The facility and the procedures of that facility were fantastic. The caregivers do an amazing thing as they sit with the family and help them care for the dying. What has been, has been. What is, is. What will be, will be. What will be comes from what is. What is comes from what has been. Why do we argue with what has been? Why do we fight with what is? Why do we try to control what will be? The practice of allowing reveals what is true. The practice of trying to control hides what is true. Your dying and my dying are the same in meaning. Yet all manifestations will always be different. Realize the common meaning. Respect the many manifestations. We're all dying. We're no different than the trees in this way. And I mentioned this in the last episode. It's a thing I think about often in recent weeks. When you look at trees, like trees grow and trees give off offspring like they they have seeds and those seeds fall off the trees and they fall into the ground and there's a gestation period essentially and then this new tree comes forward so this tree has a mom or a dad and some trees grow faster or they start up sooner and they block out the sunlight of other trees in other words they cause trauma they cause hurt. They make them being a healthy tree by its own nature inflicts harm and damage and discomfort on the tree next to it that started later or grew slower. But these trees just do their tree thing and they grow or they die. They find their little space to get some light and be a part of this world. And some of them the sun is blocked too far, and they, they die. And we're no different other than we, over thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of years, 
we've developed this thing called consciousness. And with consciousness as humans have it, we've named names and applied labels and created stories about what it means to be a human, what it means to be born and to live and to struggle and to experience joy and to die. We're no different than the trees. We're all dying. Dying has its meaning. And yet the manifestation of what that looks like from life form to life form or from human to human is so different. The process of dying does not favor anyone. It visits men and women, black and white, good and bad. The process of dying does not practice prejudice of any kind. Death erases meaning. Yet without death, there can be no meaning. Try to grasp hold of death, and you will see there is nothing to grasp. The process of dying has a hold on you. It comes to all of us. We all have to die. To spend all that you have is to have nothing left. To have only good moments is the same as having only bad moments. To think that you know everything is to cheat yourself from learning anything. Learn your limits, and you will partake in the limitless. So much in dying revolves around awakened concepts. The disillusion of boundaries, of ego. Learning to accept your present moment for what it is. Not to give it labels and stories. Not to focus in the past or the future, all you have is right here, right now. Can you forget all your agendas so that you can become a part of the only agenda? Can you become like a newborn ready to learn and ready to grow with every new happening? Can you forget about all of your past in order to be fully present? Can you love without trying to control? Can you stop working so that you can play along? Can you do all that needs to be done without doing anything? The virtue that others see in you is proportionate to the virtue that you see in others. Like just be in the moment. And so I'm in this meditation room and I'm thinking about like, if I were trapped in a prison that are my eyes, what would I want? And it hits me like all I would want is my family to be the normal selves, to have their normal conversations and to talk to me as if I'm just sitting there and participating with them. So I went back into the room the next morning. In fact, I went back into the room that night and I said, mom and dad, I'm getting ready to go to bed. I love you both. And I gave my mom a kiss and I gave my dad a kiss. And I said, I love you both. I can't wait to see you both in the morning. And I went to bed. And when I got up the next day, I walked in. Hey, mom. Hey, dad. It's a beautiful day outside. It looks like all the snow is gone. Do you see that, mom? All the snow is gone. It's warmer today. Hey, dad. How are you doing? Did you guys both sleep okay? Like if I were trapped in a body that could not respond, I would want the people I love to do their normal routines, their normal interactions, I would want them to look like my normal family acting in their normal way so that I could get lost in the story of my life. 
rather than be constantly reminded that I'm laying in a bed here and dying. And so for the rest of my remaining days sitting with my mom, that's what I did. I talked to my dad and my mom together. I gave them both hugs and kisses when I left for the night, told them both I loved them. And I tried to carry on normal conversations with my dad and brother as we were in the room, passing the time. Saturday and Sunday at my dad's home, he was told that my mom only had 24 hours to live as my mom became unresponsive. In the facility on Monday, my dad was again told that her time was short. On Tuesday, when I get there, my dad, my brother, and I are told that she has 24 to 48 hours more to live. And then by Wednesday, it's stretched to four to six days. And by Thursday, it is turned into, we essentially have to watch her starve to death. I've hit on it a bunch, but again, imagine for a moment being conscious for days on end, but no way to respond to the world. No way to say, please change the subject. That conversation hurts. No way to say, please change the channel. I don't want to watch this program. No way to say, please play different music. I don't really like this song. No way to tell people in the room that I'm still here. No way to tell people, please don't plan for my death while I'm still alive. No way to tell someone to scratch your itching nose. No way to tell someone, please move my leg. It's super uncomfortable. Imagine how slow each minute would pass. Day by day, hour by hour, second by second. As I sat in the awareness for the first time of all these facets of dying in this way, I became horrified, embarrassed, offended, adamant about what should be done and depressed. I hated the arbitrary constructs of my world. I hated the systems that benefited from these unhealthy constructs. And I hated myself for not seeing the dying process and its shortcomings sooner. To be stuck in the prison that's your own eyes is torture. A living hell. Few things could imaginably be worse. No human, no human should be forced to endure such. And hence there should be a way to quicken painlessly the prison sentence that is dying with stage four brain cancer while simultaneously starving to death. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. What did I see in her eyes when she opened them and she looked at us while we were talking to her? I saw sadness. I saw fear. I saw hurt. I saw pain. Was what I was interpreting, what I was actually seeing, was it real? Maybe. Maybe not, but this much I know, it certainly wasn't positive. It wasn't good. It absolutely wasn't joy. I thought about helping her. This may sound horrific to people, but again, as I'm sitting by myself and thinking about these things, the thought even crosses your mind as a loved one. Like, what if I grab that pillow? What if I go in that room? What if I put her out of this misery that I see that she's in? Those are the kind of things you think about while you sit and watch somebody who you love with all of your heart slowly die in front of you in a way that's not humane. 
The staff at the facility agreed. They wished there were better ways. They understood that some states out there, Oregon, for instance, allows euthanasia. And yet most states don't. Due to religious ideology, religious constructs about the invisible God that sits up in yonder heavens and judges such ending of life sooner than it should as against his commandments. And then those people who believe in those invisible arbitrary constructs with zero evidence that such a man lies in yonder heavens, zero evidence that such a man would be disappointed or upset or hurt or feel violated, that such rules were broken, enforce their inhumane rules, enforce their inhumane arbitrary constructs. We can do better. We do better with our pets. We do better when we see an animal suffering. A few months back, I had two birds. One was a little bigger than the other. I don't know if it was apparent, but I had two birds in my driveway that were both deeply hurt. They couldn't move, but they were making noise. I felt horrible. I didn't know what to do. There was no way these two birds were going to be healed. There was no way these two birds could be taken to some animal sanctuary and be rescued. And so I hated to do it, but I went to the side of my shed and I grabbed a tire and I dropped the tire on the top of those two birds, killing them, putting them out of their misery. I didn't feel good about doing it, but I felt good about what was done. We have to come up with better ways to take care of our dying. We owed my mom more than that. So at some point along the way, I had this light bulb moment and I share it so that each of you can carry out this thought. If you're ever in the space of watching a loved one or somebody dying, whether, whether they're an immediate family member or whether you just so happen to be volunteering at the local hospital, talk to them as if they're still there. Talk to others in the room as if they're still there. Talk in ways that give them a chance to be inside the stories of their life, inside their head. That's the favor you can do them. I thought in the beginning that I just need to hold my mom's hand. I need to stare into her eyes and just tell her nice things. But the best thing you can do is be your normal self so that that person can get lost in what normal was. This will be the least scary, the least foreign, the furthest possible thing from a nightmare. Five days ago, I lost my mom. The actor Keanu Reeves was on the Stephen Colbert show, and he was asked, Keanu. What do you think happens when we die, Keanu Reeves? The crowd laughs here, and I take it out because I think the crowd's laughing for two reasons. One is you're asking such a deep question for which nobody really knows the answer, because the question is pointing to what lies on the other side. I think also people are laughing because they reduce Keanu Reeves to being an actor perceived as not being the most bright. And yet his answer was deeply profound to me and I hope to you. I know that the ones who love us will miss us. The only thing we can be sure of is that the ones who love us will miss us. I miss my mom. There's a saying that there are two deaths in this life. 
One is when you take your very last breath, which I watched my mom take. They say the other is the last time that your name is uttered by the lips of another human being. When you think of it like your kids are going to talk about you when you're gone, they're going to bring you up and their experiences and memories, their joys with you. Your grandkids, way less so, but they'll do it. They'll talk about you. They'll mention grandma and how awesome she was, or grandpa and how cool he was, and the things that you do with your grandkids. Your great-grandkids, you're going to be lucky if they mention your name once or twice, and they'll be essentially clueless to who you were. You will just be an idea, not a memory. And by the time you get to your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren, you'll be gone. Gone. Unless you've done something famous and you make yourself in as a chapter in a history book, you'll be gone. I miss my mom. Brenda. Lee. Berkey. Real. I miss you, Mom. I finish off this episode with John Denver's Country Roads. My mom's father lived in West Virginia. My mom always took me and my brother there once a year to visit my grandfather. My mom had a bit of a wild spirit, and this song makes me think of her. And it's my way to send a memory of her out into the universe. I hope you learned something today about dying, about death. These are hard things to talk about. People are going to criticize me for talking about this experience. But if not me, then who? Who shares that the system is broken? Who talks about when the rubber meets the road what it looks like? We can do better. We can do better for my mom and for countless millions others. We can do better. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman. 